Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, where every week I take a look into the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond. First of all, I want to thank those who are watching on Facebook Live. This is actually a first for me. I've never done a live interview before, but I'm actually really excited about it because joining me on today's episode is former lawyer turned documentary filmmaker, Mr. Cam Cowan. How are you, sir? I'm great, Derek. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I, I just finished watching your uh, documentary, uh, Madagascar Cara, uh, about half an hour before we started. So I've got uh, a good fresh take on it. We were actually talking before we actually started recording. There's something, and I don't know if you agree with me on this, but there's something that's really fascinating about the documentary way of storytelling because you get that, I mean, you get raw emotion from a narrative sometimes, but I feel like you get it much more from a documentary because you, you're you getting a real story. No, I, I do agree with that. It, it's I, I love uh, film like you. I love film. I love all genres of film. Um, all of them, uh, I, I just cannot watch enough. Um, but the, the thing about documentaries that, that does appeal to me um, is this point that um, I think w- with most of us, maybe every one of us, when we see something that is real, um, uh, even, the, even when we watch narrative, even when we watch fictional, we, you know, the, the magic of that is we, be, we suspend judgment and we, we feel that we're in it in some way. But with a documentary, it's more primal. And, um, you know, I know that the reactions of people who have seen this film, Madagascara, um, are, are um, deep and, and sort of rooted in their senses. Um, something that that grabs them, and and they can't just let it go by saying, "Oh well, you know that was a great story, but it was fiction." Um, it, it really does grab people, as a as a good documentary should. I mean, there are all sorts of documentaries, right? There are entertainment documentaries, documentaries about rock bands and and performers, and and then there's sort of investigative documentaries, um, which is one of the last bastions of long form journalism. Uh, now and and when you have that, particularly when it involves characters, when it involves real people, um, uh, I, I think it it uh, it can be much more powerful uh, than even even a uh, high budget uh, big studio narrative. Yeah, and I I would agree with that, and and also talking about your film a little bit, and I know we'll get a little bit more into it uh, as we go, but. When you hear stories like this documentary, it's one thing to read about it in an article online or in a newspaper, but to actually see the events happening, I think, offers a much different perspective because I'm a very visual learner. You know, I learn by watching and I learn by Mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. Seeing the things that these people are going through is just is mind blowing. And it's one thing like, you know, you kind of know about it because you'll read it, but it's just like the visual aspect of it is just uh, on a whole different level. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of the, part of the power of it, of the, of a, of a documentary when you're particularly when you're following people, um, we knew we were going to, we knew we wanted to follow real people. Um, 
we, we had a big political sort of perspective, a thesis, um, but um, that we tested along the way and, and, and modified as new information uh, came out. But we knew that we wanted to uh, follow the lives of at least three. Uh, originally, we were thinking four, and the, the, the rough cut had four uh, families. Um, and, and the purpose of that is, is sort of what you're getting at, I think, in, in that when we read about um, uh, famine in sub-Saharan Africa or, um, you know, a, a natural um, uh, disaster in Haiti, and, and then we see the numbers, so many dieters, so many um, uh you know, suffering, suffering from starvation, so many out of house, you know, the numbers become overwhelming and, um, we, we tend to just move on. I mean, it's, it's, it's human nature. It's the way we are. It's like, oh, that's terrible. And you move on. But, but when we, when we can relate to what's happening to real people and, and tell those, those stories, um, it sits with us deeper, uh, and we tend not to move on. We tend to think about it a little bit more and, and even begin to ask, you know, if those people, if we come to a conclusion that those people we just saw, that we were allowed to get into their lives, those, for those people, um, if, if they are, if they can muster compassion in us, um, then we tend to act. And, and that was the whole thing that, that we wanted as many people as possible to see this movie, but we actually wanted people to think about what had happened and, and what, if anything, can be done about it um, by portraying the, uh, the lives and the struggles and the hopes and, and the joy of uh, these real people. Now, I do want to get into how you found these people and you know, their reaction to you know, when you guys told them that you wanted to do this. But I, I got to ask, yeah. what was it that made you want to essentially change careers and and, and do this documentary? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think like most people who go to law school who want to become lawyers, there's some sort of um, social justice rationale, regardless of your political stripe. Um, you actually believe that if, if you can study the law and practice law, even if you're working in a big corporate law firm, um, uh, there are things you can do to um, advance our society in, in some way. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of lawyers lose sight of that, um, you know, a after they start practicing law by the, the pressures of, of life and everything. But um, I think we all start that. And I started that way. That's why I wanted to go to law school. Um, and uh, my first few years of practicing law, um, I was fortunate enough to um, have the opportunity on a pro bono basis to present uh, death penalty um, uh, defendants in appellate litigation, so people on death row in appellate litigation. And that uh, was an awakening. Um, I really got to see uh, up close um, uh, sort of the, the wheels of injustice working, and um, it, it um, you know, it touched me to the bone. So uh, I knew that I wanted to continue on with things like that, although not death penalty work. Um, mm. 
<laughs> but uh, um, I knew I wanted to keep going on with that. I continued to practice law, um, got married, had a family, but I always did pro bono work. And I, I, uh, my wife and I uh, started a uh, human rights study clinic at my law school, the University of Virginia uh, School of Law, and kept up with that uh, all the time. And that was important to us. So that, but I reached a, uh, a point where I was enjoying practicing law less. Um, I didn't feel that the things I was doing um, uh, on the pro bono side and for social justice were really making that much of a difference. Um, and so I wanted to, and as I said, I've always enjoyed film. Um, uh, some of my biggest heroes are documentary filmmakers, um, just because of, of their courage and, and commitment, uh, to truth telling. And, um, so I decided that I was going to leave law and, uh, learn how to make a documentary film and spent quite a while uh, in that process. I was very fortunate to run into and find a lot of people who, um, including former lawyers who turned documentary filmmakers, who uh, just anything I wanted, whatever help uh, uh, they could give me. Um, it was totally generous, amazing, um, and really helped me out, including learning how to operate a camera and learning sound equipment and, and all of that. Um, I watched, uh, you know, thousands of uh, documentary films. I talked to uh, filmmakers. Um, and I had already started So Hey Productions, which was a production company that was going to be the vehicle for all this. And um, soon I was attending one of the human rights study uh, clinic uh, presentations by the law school students, and they had they study one country every year, and and over almost fifteen years they had studied countries like Sierra Leone and and Sri Lanka and uh, Egypt and and Uganda, Uganda and China and India. They gone all over. This year, they said uh, they were going to focus on Madagascar, and I remember thinking, Madagascar, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? This is supposed to be a serious human rights thing. And and they really, um, you know, they thought I was pretty ignorant for somebody <laughs> who uh, had been around and and just explained it to me, educated me about it. Uh, part of their program is they go to a country for three weeks over winter break to do primary research, and they come back and give a presentation to the faculty and student body. And I always go to those. And uh, during that presentation, I was just stunned by what I saw. And and it really it really got to me. I wasn't looking. I wasn't particularly looking for a project, um, but a particular project. But what really struck me is why did I not know about this? Why did I not know about the real Madagascar? How did it get that way? Um, and is there anything that can be done? Because it was just stunning. What I heard um, was that at that time Madagascar was the poorest country on the planet. And just think about that. That's, that's extraordinary. So we, we in our hemisphere often think of Haiti, and Haiti is, has uh, terrible poverty. But the population of Madagascar at that time was close to 25 million people. It's the fourth largest island in the world. It's a huge country the size of France. Half the population are children. 
So half of the population are under the age of, of 18, and half of those children are stunted, are chronically malnourished. Um, and it's just like, how, how, how did I not know about this? And so I started to dig in and do my own research. And um, uh, one of the things I found, I mean, there, there are, are a myriad of reasons, but one of the things I found was um, the, the dysfunction politically uh, in Madagascar, the national political dysfunction. Since it was a French colony for 60 years from 1900 to 1960, after 1960, uh, they had a series of almost almost every 10 years, there was some unconstitutional change of government, whether uh, a little violent. There was never a, a full civil war, but a little violent or or peaceful. But but there was something always happened. Uh, and the poverty continued to get worse and worse. So it's the you saw in the film um, the statement that it's the only um, non-war country that's poorer today than it was in 1960. And so digging into it, I, I, I did see there was there was national political dysfunction. But what one of the things I learned was a participation of the international community in um, this poverty. Now, the international community does a lot of great things, the World Bank and the IMF and all that, absolutely essential things in UNICEF. But when you, when you looked at sort of particular decisions that politicians were making, as opposed to these uh, global uh, finance organizations and, and aid organizations, um, it, it was stunning to me, and, and one in particular with two, two in particular, one 2002 and 2009, relating to this one um, millionaire who uh, ended up being the mayor of the capital city and then ran for president in 2002 and, and uh, rejected the outcome of the first round of elections and started a mini-civil war. He was a favorite of the United States and, and many of the Western countries, so ultimately he got their support and, and took over. But it became sort of autocratic. And in 2009, um, through a series of things, which when people see the film, they'll, they'll see, um, he, uh, there were street protests. And the street protests ended violently, and, and, and among other things, that among other things, um, caused uh, uh, him to be ousted. Um, he actually resigned. He voluntarily resigned. He later said there was a gun at his head, but the U.S. ambassador said there was nobody there. Um, and uh, but that triggered the United States and and uh, most of the rest of the world to impose universal sanctions. So in 2009, you have the poorest country in the world, half the population children, half the children grossly malnourished, and world governments. Um, impose universal sanctions on this country. At that time, that country depended between 60 and 70 percent, numbers vary, um, on foreign aid for the delivery of all of its social services. So this is non-humanitarian aid. Just regular foreign aid, they, they depended uh, on that to 60, 70 percent of provide, providing health care, education, access to food, access to water, those kinds of things. And that was immediately wiped out. So in my mind, you know, it's my country sort of, you know, 
doing this wrong. It's 2009. The president of the country is Barack Obama, whose father was born in the continent of which Madagascar is a part, and Hillary Clinton, who you know has dedicated her life to women and children. And they make that decision. And I just couldn't understand what happened. It didn't make sense to me. Um, so I kept digging and digging and digging and and really uh, developed some thoughts on it and and knew that um, I really wanted to tell this story. Uh, I wanted to get it out because it was something that I just not, did not know. And and um, uh, and I, I thought people should know. And and uh, so so wanted to proceed um with the film it was only it was later when uh i knew that i wanted to also follow um some families to to bring the uh the uh truth the reality of their existence uh to the screen well kind of going back to you mentioning that uh, madagascar is poorer now than it was in 1960 i think that was the most mind-blowing stat to me is that you know you have the the graphic on the screen that says in 1960 poverty was at X percent. I can't remember what the exact number is. And then it just gets higher and higher. And I'm just like, how is this happening? And I I will say, and because I I think it has something to do with, you know, what we're going on, what's going on with us as a country right now, watching the footage from the protest really, that kind of hit home with me. Like that's, that's been what's going on here. A lot, a lot of people have commented recently that it it reminded them of um, the uh, the Lafayette Park emptying by the police and military when Donald Trump wanted to walk across the park to hold up a Bible in front of a church. Mm-hmm. Um, they shot rubber bullets and tear gas, and and people were dispersed by heavily armed uh, police and military. Um, and by a, you know, <laughs> a billionaire, um, president who, who, um, probably has some, uh, undemocratic leanings, just like, uh, Mark Ravalomana in Madagascar. So totally, really different, but people are, are seeing the parallels, um, here. And, uh, uh, and while we will never become one of the world's poorest countries, um, there, there are, you know, this all relates to the decisions individuals make, right? Mm-hmm. And poverty, poverty is not fate. Poverty is not inevitable. Poverty can be eliminated. Certainly, extreme poverty can be eliminated. And but that just takes sort of decision making by people who want to do that and the willpower to do it. There are enough resources around the planet to do that. Um, but when you see the political, and this is one of the things we tried to, to pull out in the film, when you see the political decision-making, um, there it is. There's the problem, right? It's, it's, it's about them. It's not about the people. And, and they may start out that, that it's really about the people and they want to represent the people and improve the lives of the people. And just along the way, um, they change. And uh, in in Madagascar, most of the people who have uh, become president, uh, certainly uh, most who have run for president, um, say they want to make change, um, never did. Got in, never did. And became rich in the process. Um, so and and would do anything to get reelected. 
Um, so it's, it's, you know, we may be getting numb to that. We may be saying, well, that's politics. That's what politicians do. I hope we're not. Uh, I hope, I hope we can really think about, um, what politicians should be doing, um, and, and not what they do and, and normalize that. Um, and I think there are lessons in, in, you know, at a different scale, what happened to Madagascar and what's happening in, in many countries around the world today. Yeah, another thing that blew my mind, it was, I think the first, um, I believe her name was Lynn, the first subject yep. that, that you talked to, when she mentioned yep. that she worked for what was the equivalent of 28 cents. And, yep. I'm, and I'm like, yep. wait, what? Like 28 cents? Like, and it's one of those, yep. and you alluded to it before, it's, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And it, it's, right. it's ignorance, yes, but not the negative type of ignorance, just because you, you, you don't. What can you do or what do you know if you don't know? So I, I think, you know, you you taking this on and really any documentary filmmaker who feels that passionately about a subject that they want to bring to light like this, I, I commend you guys for oh, 110%. Thank you. Thank, you. Yeah. thank you. And, you know, you see someone like Lynn. Um, and so, yeah, she she works all day long. She's got all these children. Um, that she's raising by herself and um, what she makes they can buy two cups of rice. So, you know, it's no wonder why children are um, uh, grossly malnourished. And, um, and also, you know, rice is bad for your blood pressure. (laughs) Almost every Malagasy person has blood pressure problems because rice is a staple. They, they live on rice. It's really important, important to their diet. But, but, when you see Lynn as well as, as the other women um, and and hear those stories and then watch how they live and watch how they take care of their children and, and watch how uh, they have joy in their life and sorrow in their life and, and how they struggle, I think it, it's, it causes us to really think deeply about the others, right, the, those less fortunate, because they do get along. Um, they, they will get along. They're, they're committed to their children. Um, they will survive. Um, and, uh, I I think they're, I I took away, um, really, uh, enthusiastic, re-energized about the human spirit after being there. It's not demoralized at all. Um, I felt really good because I could see at, at its at its very rawest uh, nature um, the the strength and resiliency of the human spirit. It kind of reminds me, and this is trivial compared to what you witnessed, but I, I think it's a good analogy. So earlier this year, I was training for a 15k. So I would wake up really early in the morning to run. And there was one day, this was, I think, two weeks before the run actually happened. I'm running through one of the neighborhoods near my house, and I'm just, I'm not feeling it. You know, my legs feel like lead. (laughs) And I'm just like, man, I I just don't really feel like running today. And then across the street from me, I saw this this older woman. And you know, like the the canes you have that, you know, you can wrap around your wrist. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's out walking on the sidewalk, and I'm like, okay. 
I need to stop complaining about myself and keep going. Because if she's out yeah. here, you know, at four in the morning walking, then yeah. I should be able to run. So I mean, it's it's seeing stuff like that. You you think that are just you know insurmountable things that you can't imagine living through, but they still survive and they still go on and they still and it's it's you know you see it in the documentary too there are positive aspects like it's not a completely negative story and you see right. the positive aspects of it and yet it really makes you think you know you know i'm i'm pretty lucky to be in the position that i'm in yeah yeah no i, I love i love the comparison um because uh, that's right and i don't think about that much but, but that sounds exactly right to me that that uh, we, beyond the sort of sort of mission lessons um, there, that I had, there there are just these personal lessons about fortitude and and you know commitment um, and what it takes. Um, you know when you when you see um, Tina right working in the quarry mm -hmm. um, all day long. Um, you know, breaking rock to me, the, the, the reason I wanted to be in that quarry and film it. Um, and we actually had a fourth person and, and family from there that, that we, uh, ultimately, um, had to cut, but, um, that quarry to me, the, it, what I thought about other than the, you know, amazing, visuals and the jagged shades of gray, you know, on, you know, cut through a, a hillside was um, the closest analogy I had, what came to mind would be like uh, a, a life sentence of hard labor breaking rock, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of chain gang or something like that. And, and for them, that is a life sentence of hard labor breaking rock. <laughs> and, and this is what they do and this is their normal life. But it's, it really is like an economic prison, uh, for them. And there literally is no way out. And so they struggle mightily. Um, to get their kids educated, right? They're spending most of their money on education because education is not free. And, and they spend most of it on that for their children to get them educated. And, and I kept thinking about this, even though with whatever degree they get, um, you know, unless they go to college and then unless they're lucky getting out of college, um, they'll her kids are probably back in the quarry just like she was because her parents still work in the quarry. Um, that was but nuts nevertheless, too. Yeah. But nevertheless, she's still going to fight because she's still going to want to get them an education. You know, she had a fourth grade education. Um, she didn't want that for her kids. You know, she wanted them to get educated and, and all the women. And that was one of the things, right? So we, we were basically following three women and their families. And that wasn't intended. I wanted to follow families um, but one of the things I learned, um, quickly, is, uh, in Madagascar is it is the women that's keeping, uh, society together there, uh, because of their commitment to their children. And, um, you know, poverty affects women and children the most. And these, these, just seeing these women in action, uh, so dedicated to their children, um, was really inspiring. And, and, you know, when I was on the film festival circuit and, and doing Q and A's afterward, um, uh, you know, one way or another, I would say something like, 
you know, and I was I was just blown away by these women, you know, who were who were amazing and and you know so dedicated and you know you'd see all the women in the audience say what well of course <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> you know, they were, right right yes uh, yeah right um but uh but that is one of the, the interesting things it was it was the women who just emerged um as family leaders and 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 not just family leaders because certainly there, there were uh, male family leaders but but it was just their forward-looking nature you know their their commitment um to to trying to have their children have a better future than they've had i can't remember if it's the same woman but i i know in one scene in the quarry there was a woman actually breastfeeding her child while working in the quarry i was just like man that's It was it was a, it was a different a different woman, but but there are dozens of them. Um, mm-hmm. That's what they that's what they must do. They've they've got children, but they've got to work. Um, so they'll they'll bring their children in. Early on in in filming, I, I, we spent a lot of time in the quarry, and we were we were really warmly welcomed. Uh, you know, we made many many friends. Uh, in the quarry, really just remarkable uh, people. Mal- Malagasy people uh, themselves are remarkably friendly. You know, it's dangerous to make a generalization like that, but it's, it's just my experience. And warm and engaging, um, and uh, and we were uh, totally embraced um, by people, people of privilege, right? People from the United States, the wealthiest country in the world, and and I was just treated like a, a son or a brother you know, or an uncle, uh, there and, you know, people insist on, you know, bringing me home to have meals and do, I was not expecting a thing just because they were, um, remarkably lovely people. But we did, we found there was a woman who had twins, very young twins, uh, and she had to bring them, uh, to the quarry and her mother worked in the quarry. Um, and so would help with the twins. And, you know, it's just the scene of seeing the, the grandmother and the mother and, and the two infants. Um, and she was, you know, breastfeeding one and the handing to the mother and breastfeeding the other. Um, and then, uh, three months later we came back and I, I went, uh, to talk to them and there was only one twin and, and the other had died. And, and so, you know, I wanted to understand that and it was, you know, her is just like, well, you know, this, <laughs> this is what happens here. Yeah. Um, I, I can't, I can't be too upset. I have to break rock. I have to take care of this, the, the one child who has survived. And it was very, it was heart wrenching. Yeah. It's crazy to think that you just have no time to grieve. You know, for us, that's right. unthinkable, right. but you know, over there, it, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's just part of, part of what goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk to me about, you, know, you You have this idea, you learn all this information, and you want to know more, and you decide that you're going to make this documentary happen. How did you meet the, the subjects that you featured in the documentary, and how, you, what, what was the starting process of getting it off the ground? Yeah, um, it, really fun question. Um, the, uh, and it's hard as, it's hard as, 
it was and the conditions were and it was brutal. I mean, I, I don't think when I was when I was actually filming, I don't think I got more than three or four hours sleep a night ever just because of everything that had to be done and, and all of that. So so really, really demanding. But the, because of the people, um, uh, the warmth and, and richness of the people, um, there were way more uh, fun moments than than disturbing moments. Um, uh, you know, it was, it was, um, it was a process. I knew, I knew I wanted to meet, um, uh, some people and, and talk to them. I, I, I knew I'd have to be very selective. Um, so I wanted to, um, uh, find some people who would, would, um, be expressive. Um, but, and I knew I was going to have to follow them and you know, I was looking, thinking of three years, because you know, if you follow anybody for three years, some stories will evolve. Um, uh, maybe not uh, in a country like Madagascar, but but I, I did want to follow um, for a period of time. Um, and I was I I didn't know if if anybody would even consider doing that since everybody's working so hard, and I knew that I couldn't pay anybody, you know, documentary film ethics are you just not going to do that. And I was clear with everybody that, um, that was a constraint. So if they were going to, um, uh, you know, help us and, and, uh, with our story and let us follow them and, and go in, as you see in the film, right into their most intimate moments, um, then, then, uh, you know, they were going to have to do it because they thought the project worthwhile. To a person, um, and nobody asked for money, not one person, they really believed in the project. And in fact, uh, I, you know, I got a fascinating story about Deborah. Um, so there's Lynn we talked about who does a close washing, Tina in the quarry, and, and Deborah, uh, who now lives in the countryside, um, about that. Um, but, but, but I, you know, I went in, I talked to people, I, I found a great initially interpreter who became my fixer, who became the assistant director, brilliant guy, brilliant Malagasy guy that actually studied uh, uh, American uh, culture at George Washington University, got a master's, you know, so so really sharp guy and and um, uh, has become a very close friend. But he was great because uh, he came from not great circumstances as he says because of his mother he got his education and and uh, uh he helped me find some people there who could who could help with technical parts and uh of of the shoot and um then as we went around um we, we just started to meet people and talk to people and it took took a while it took a, a long time um i would be filming while we're talking would ask them if we could do that um, uh, just in, so I could go back and look at it and, and, you know, hear the backstory and see them and see, you know, is this, you know, should these dates, but, but when, when I said, you know, when I, when I told people why I was doing this and uh, what I wanted to with it, um, uh, everybody said, yeah, you know, how can I help? You know, what what can we do? 
Um, you know, and part of it is I, I do want people to know about Madagascar, the real Madagascar, because there will be another unconstitutional change of government in Madagascar. There just will be. There's no political stability. There's no political foundation, um, their true democratic foundation. Uh, and there will be another one. And what will the reaction of the international community be then? And I wanted this film to be a document that could discuss what happened in 2009 when the international community made the decision to pull the plug on the president. Um, and, and so hopefully that, you know, we can reach enough people and, and, you know, I'm hoping that we can show the movie uh, in the Senate and the house here too, and get it, get it to some decision makers and, and say, you know, what, what did we do? What did we do in 2009 when president Obama was in the white house and Hillary Clinton was secretary of state and, and no matter who's in charge, uh, let's, let's think about not using, uh, universal sanctions. I had the, the thesis that what the international community did in 2009 was in fact a human rights violation itself. Um, and, um, as we developed information and talked to people, um, we saw that in fact, that was a, uh, uh, that was a conclusion reached by, uh, one of the uh, UN special rapporteurs and, and professor of human rights law. Um, but, uh, so when I, t when I tell people, you know, that it's my country and I'm concerned about what my country does as, as, you know, the, uh, leading, leading country of the, of the West, um, they know, right? Cause people depend on the United States, uh, there, they depend on the aid there. Uh, they depend on participation in the African Growth and Opportunity Act there for their textile uh, factories and employs hundreds of thousands of people. And they, they're concerned about being critical <laughs> um, of the United States. But, you know, when I was saying, you know, uh, I'm going to do this because I think it's important because there will be another coup and everybody said there will be. Of course, there will be. Um, let, let's not repeat our mistakes and, and let's get out there. So. So people were amazing. Um, Deborah, Deborah was an interesting case. Um, I had learned from the uh, law school students um, about um, the uh, uh, child sex work that was prevalent there, as it is in many countries that are that poor, and um, and and uh, you know, in many cases, sort of family sponsored child sex work because there are no options. There are just no options. Um, and, um, I, I, you know, I wanted to understand that better. Um, why was that in a country where actually prostitution is legal um, uh, for women over 18? And um, so, so, you know, at first I thought, and, and I did learn about a, a family that that had a story, and I, I wasn't necessarily interested in in filming it and going into it, but I did want to meet them. And they worked in another quarry, um, and uh, I when I was on the ground there and sort of got my legs under me after a couple of trips and met all these amazing people, I said, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not. I I don't want to even be perceived as exploiting that issue. 
Um, but I had talked to an NGO and an NG, you know, um, in, in terms of trying to find people, um, to, to consider, um, to interview and, and the, NG, the people of the NGO who are just amazing, um, great public servants, um, uh, said, now somebody told us that, that you, uh, had been interested in talking to a child sex worker, but, but decided against it. And I explained why. And I said, well, you know, there's, there's this um, girl who was 17 at the time uh, who uh, uh, had been a, a child sex worker, uh, but she was part of our program uh, to pull uh, these girls out of sex work and, bring, and put them back into school. And it was a program that was funded by the U.S. government. Um, and when they found her, all she had wanted to do was was uh, get an education, and they found her, and 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 um, she got into the program. The program, which was terminated uh, when when uh, aid was terminated in 2009, but uh, um, they said she did a video uh, for us when she was in school because she wanted people to understand that she wasn't ashamed you know, she was ashamed but but she wanted people to to understand why she did what she did and and how fortunate they are uh to be in school and uh, you should meet her and I, and I said okay you know and then we found through, with their help found the social workers um who found her and then uh she and her mother uh and her brother came in and I talked with them and, and when we got to her uh, experience with sex work, she just uh, broke down and cried. I said, okay, fine, you know, um, uh, we're not gonna do this. And then we heard, heard back later through the social workers that no, no, in fact, she really wants to do this. She thinks it's important. Um, okay, brought him back and, and same thing happened. So I said, no, we're not gonna do this. Uh, uh, next trip, uh, social workers came to me and said, no, she really wants to do this. She wants you to come out to their home. And their home is is the home you saw in the uh, in the film, which was just a you know it's like desperate, mm -hmm. um, a little little shack um, that they couldn't afford, right? And um, uh, uh, so okay, we 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 set up the equipment, we go through everything and start talking, and then I get to the point about um, you know, her experience with sex work, and and she. Um, uh, she broke down and cried. And I said, okay, you know, I, I'm just not, you know, I, I'm not going to do this. This would be exploiting her. And so we began to pack up and she, she put her uh, hand on my shoulder and said, no, I really want to do this. I want to help girls who were like me. And, uh, and we went back and did it. And then as you saw in the film, it's, it's one of the uh, more fascinating, uh, uh, arcs of a character um, going from where she was to um, uh, to where she ended up um, several years later. Well, and that's powerful stuff because you, you got to think that's that has to be one of the worst or most difficult things to talk about, and the fact that she was able to do it because she believed in it. That that's right. got to be a powerful feeling on your end. It really was. She's just a remarkable young woman. I mean, just remarkable, and and um, uh, and it felt great. It, it, it and it was encouraging, right? So so yes, 
um, you know, I, I often have to remind myself that with all those sleepless nights and all of the difficulties and everything that was going on and the commitment that I had made to make a big film, um, uh, as hard as that was, when I, when I would go back and, and visit with these amazing people, it was just like, well, of course we're going to do this. You know, there's no question, you know, full speed ahead. Um, uh, they deserve this. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, they, they don't give up. I'm not going to give up uh, on this. And, and, uh, to, to a great extent, they kept us moving, kept us moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioning that is actually a great segue to my next question. Out of all the things that you filmed, because you captured a lot of content and a lot of stories, what to you was the most challenging aspect of, of making this a reality? Boy, good question. Um, right from the beginning, so I, I knew and a lot of my filmmaking friends were telling me that um, I shouldn't do what I'll call a hybrid film, that I shouldn't do a political essay film and a character film, do one or the other. Um, and that's typically how they are done. Um, uh, so you can have a film like, you know, give these taxis to the dark side and, and that's at very high level and amazing film Academy award winner, but it's not, you don't develop characters in that, um, that kind of film. Um, uh, you, you develop, you, you, you have a character film, you develop the characters and they tell the story and whatever, you know, comes out of that um, sort of goes to a higher level understanding of, of the viewer and hopefully the higher level story um, uh, comes through. I knew, though, that the political story was complicated um, and buried. Um, it wouldn't come out in the character study. Um, and I, I um, found these documents, these U.S. embassy cables, and I knew that I wanted to tell that story, and but yet I knew I had to um, uh, tell the story of these women, and so the hard part was I had an idea of how we were going to do it. So we have an arc of the political story, which you know did rely on archival footage and, and going back in time. Um, uh, but having that go over the, the course of the film, the political story unfold over the course of the film, while the stories of the three characters were unfolding over the course of the film. So I had that idea. And, and so, yes, there were a lot of um, hurdles and, and physical barriers and, and everything to, to the actual film production in Madagascar. But when we sat in the editing room, sort of with this idea, putting that all together and making that work was really difficult. Um, so when people were saying, don't do it, you know, it's not going to be good. I, you know, I get it. And it's real hard. Um, and, but, but I was committed to that. I, I really felt that, that I would come up short um, going just one way or the other. And so that was, that was the hard part, trying to put all that together and, and hopefully, uh, 
hopefully we succeeded. We we had a, a two hour rough cut that I really liked. We had a, a four and a half hour rough cut, cut it down to two hours, and I really liked the two hour rough cut. And it was much fuller story. It had another character, um, but it was way too long for a documentary film um, like this. And and um, uh, so as we were cutting down. Um, we actually got, so part of the problem was weaving the, the political story and the three character story all together. But as we were cutting down, part of the problem was actually cutting it down. Yeah. <laughs> um, like every, like every film documentary filmmaker for sure, who does an investigative kind of film, uh, has that problem. And, uh, we, we actually, at the end, my lead editor, Tiffany and I, we just, we challenged each other to a competition at the two hour to, to cut it down. We were shooting between for 82 to 85 minutes and, and we both got down to about a hundred minutes, but we were so invested in it at the time. She was my co-producer as well. Um, that, that, uh, we went and got a consulting editor who really helped us. And it was a great, it was a really good thing to do. Um, uh, very cost effective, very efficient. And she came in and we told her what we, you know, what our objective was and she really helped. It was remarkable. Well, and I think, you know, going off of that point about the political aspect as well as the story of the three women, yeah, in a way it's two different stories, but they do intertwine because the political aspect does affect the story of the three women. So in yes. a way it isn't, yes. it, it, it does, you know, go together. So I, I think, you know, that was the right decision to keep to keep both because you see how this broader story affects the individual who lives in that area that's being affected. So absolutely right. Um, great, great observation. You couldn't we couldn't really tell we couldn't convey the real story of those characters if we weren't also conveying the political story. Absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, Shannon Williams uh, in the Facebook live chat, he asked, where and when can we see the film? Um, uh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> um, the, um, the film is going to be released um, on Amazon Prime and Docurama on June 26th. Fantastic. And then we're. And then we're going to be following up um, shortly thereafter on iTunes and Google Play and, and several other streaming services. Well, I would highly recommend that that everybody watch it because, you know, I, I did uh, an interview last week with uh, two documentary filmmakers who actually um, they're part of the LGBTQ community. And they made a documentary about uh, these two friends who grew up, you know, practically next door to each other. And they were both transgender and came out at the same time and then going from that to watching this it's like back-to-back -back, you know gut-punching documentary so it's it's been a, an interesting couple of weeks so i i do appreciate you know the opportunity to to watch an advanced version of it and it, it was it was really powerful stuff thank you derek very much and and thanks thanks so much for being interested in it and, and i hope i hope that you know it it will matter we've also created a um uh, a charity called Madikids.org. And because uh, a lot of the times, I actually saw this in film festivals, come out of the film festival, people would say, well, okay, but how can we help, right? And that's just a natural reaction. Um, and uh, people can, can make contributions to Madikids.org, you know, a dollar, <laughs> um, as you see in the film, uh, can provide a week's worth of food. 
Um, and so uh, we, we connected up with um, Pedro Peca's uh, NGO, Akamaso, where 100% of what people contribute go there, and 100% of that goes to um, the children uh, in Madagascar. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, as we start to wrap up here, what is, and I always like to, to end you know, interviews with filmmakers on this, what is one piece of advice you could give to someone who wants to make a documentary film? Um, great question. Well, the, the, the classic advice is um, uh, only make a film that you're passionate about. Um, and, and I think that is absolutely right uh, because it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, that you're always going to blow your budget. You're always going to blow your time schedule. Um, it's going to always take longer than you think. Um, and, uh, it can be very hard. Um, but, uh, a piece of advice someone gave me early on, uh, which I think is great, um, is, uh, when you have your vision, um, stick to it. Even if you've got a multi-year project and even if you're running into trouble and even if things stay to your vision. Of course, you're going to learn things and adjust, but stay to your vision. Don't compromise. And and um, that's it's the best advice I got. I, I thought about it a lot. I kept writing it down. Um, and I think that's the best advice I could give to a, uh, someone starting out making documentary films. Absolutely. And uh, Bill Lyons also asks in the Facebook chat, uh, have you taken the film uh, to any festivals? We have. So we had a wonderful festival run in 2018-2019. Uh, um, and uh, there's about uh, 35 or more festivals, I think, um, in the United States and in Europe. And uh, we won uh, over 20 awards, um, which was really great. That's awesome. Um, for, for Best Feature Documentary, Best... Um, cinematography, best editing, best director, and and uh, and that was important, right? I mean, in, in the festivals, I saw so many really compelling films, narrative and documentary, in festivals by indie filmmakers who will never see the light of day, yeah, you know? and uh, or or it will be um, just sort of on YouTube or something like that. Now that could be very effective, but. But um, we were just very fortunate um, to get the awards because then that means um, sales agents um, will want to talk with you. If you're, if you're starting out and you're indie and, and you're doing something that's a little different, um, you sort of need to be successful on the film festival circuit. So, so we were extremely fortunate and then we ended up with a great, a great distributor, uh, Global Digital Releasing. So. Couldn't, couldn't be happier about that. And last question, do you have any website or social media that you'd like to plug so the viewers and the listeners can follow you? Yeah, please. Uh, and thank you to all of the uh, viewers and listeners. Uh, at Sohei Productions, Sohei is S-O-H-E-I, Sohei Productions. Um, that'll get you to our Facebook and Instagram and uh, at Cam Cowan film uh, will get you to our tweets. Fantastic. And in closing, if you want to follow my show on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. You can find past episodes 
on all podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, Thank you to the Unicorn Wranglers for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can check out all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. Cam, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. And as I mentioned before we started, thank you for uh, being the guinea pig for my first live show. I I thought this was really fantastic, so thank you. Thank you.